I'm Carrie Fountain, and this is Just to Say, where we talk to poets about the poems they make and the poems they love. Poetry's about anarchy, it's about mystery, it's about dreams, it's about, you know, the unknown. I made myself anew in poetry. The poem invites the world to come celebrate. This is Sam Sachs calling from Brooklyn, New York, and this is my poem, Hashtag Hypochondria. Who were we before germ theory? Back in the liquid days of humors, when tumors grew from an imbalance of black bile. Who were we back in the miasma days, when a bouquet of dead yellow flowers below the nose could prevent bacteria from growing in your spine? Thank you, science, for teaching me what to fear most. If I lived 200 years ago, I'd have been bled nightly. I'd have slept at the foot of a holy man's bed. I'd have lapped up his snake waters. On the subway, I breathe into my white t-shirt. I avoid drinking water when news of brain-eating parasites surfaces three states away. I recoil inside my hands when I use them. I'm trying to be better about being in the world. What happened? When I was young, I'd make love to anything with a pulse. I'd spelunk through sewer veins to find the easiest way across town. I'd huff, paint, and rage until blacking out on a friend's disgruntled carpet. Of course I know I'm going to die. Until then, I'm attempting only to stave off the flies. I'm trading what's left of my youth for a glass tube to cast a quiet spell inside. Are you a hypochondriac? (laughs) I am. uh, Self-diagnosed, though, and therapists have confirmed it. This poem is a mixture of humor. (laughs) And there's such a, like irresistible voice saying the poem you know like i'm trying to be better about being in the world and i love the way that just arrives there in the in the middle of the poem and then what happened when i was young i'd make love to anything with a pulse like it's just um so funny like what i and i'd spelunk through sewer veins to find the easiest way across town you know in some ways it's um this poem is like nostalgic for something very strange. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, and I think that's sort of where the poem started, you know, uh, that revelation where I'm like, I'm terrified of everything, you know, like both of the news and negotiating being in public or being in community with anyone else has got me like terrified. Mm. Um And then so I was like trying to look back both on my youth and then also back to history, right? And sort of where these feelings of disgust and unhygienity come from both in me and both like the history of, uh, collapsing out with the history of medicine. And I think for me, it like has a lot to do with aging, right? And then like experiencing illness in ways that I had Mm -hmm. it when I was young, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't think anything could hurt me when I was young. Or I imagined it could, but not in the sort of bodily way that actually experiencing physical pain and illness does. So I think, yeah, this poem is like attempting to explore that and then coming up, coming up empty. (laughs) Not really, not really figuring it out. 
I'm not sure about that coming up empty. I mean, the mm. poem is not left, is not, mm. that's one of the things about the poems that comprise this collection that I find so skillful, that there mm. is this almost like a dramatization of like, discovering one's own place in the world and mm. also suffering and, and, and some mental mental illness. But it never seems to lack a sense of, I want to say hope, but I mm. think I, I mean meaning, you know, like that mm. there's hope and meaning. And I just feel like mm. this poem ends with that, ends there. Um, mm. Of course I know I'm going to die. You know, like mm -hmm. it's uh, having an argument with the, uh, the itself, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. That's, let's put that aside, which <laughs> is right. like, you know, the <laughs> question. Um, the the thing about life, right, is that it ends. Mm. Until then, I'm attempting mm. only to stave off the flies. I'm trading mm. what's left of my youth for a glass tube to cast a quiet spell inside. Like there's mm. a longing there for a kind of um, purity, right? Like a kind mm. of protection from the world, which is like what hypochondriacs... I, you know, I, I, I dabble in <laughs> a little bit of hypochondria myself, you know, that that's sort of what you're like, like, that's the, that's what they're, that's what a hypochondriac is longing for, this sort of sense of purity mm -hmm. and being sealed and being protected from the world. But that is not, I mean, that's the double edged, or that's the thing is that that's not what, that's not the cure, you know? Mm -hmm. That's it's, not the... it's quite a pickle, what uh, protecting oneself from the world in a healthy way versus uh, in the sort of di diagnostic way, right? Or like an unhealthy unhealthy way is. Because, uh, you know, it's a scary, scary world out there. So in a lot of ways, it makes sense to seal yourself off from it. Um, and it seems that culture provides uh, often like how, how dirty we can get, right? Or like uh, as medicine shifts and evolves. Um, so like both in that physical way and then in an emotional way and sort of how that's mapped on to desire and how that's mapped into how we negotiate space and community. And I think all of that's at work for me. Um, I think when I said comes up empty, I didn't mean empty in a negative way. I mean, I think a lot of the poems in this book for me are trying to put a lot of sort of systems, uh, in a row and look at them not to make sense of them, but to order one's place in history and to see one's place in uh, how we relate to the world. You know? And I love the way that that there's a, there's a strain running through the book too, mm. of like the history of medicine, the history of diagnosis. And there's like a comfort in a diagnosis, but that's not, that mm. also is not the end, right? And just how our culture has come to, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm yeah. sure that in, the, I'm sure that 200 years ago, before we knew about germ theory, mm -hmm. hypochondria expressed itself possibly not in the same way as we do now when we have Google at our fingertips and right, right. the worst possible <laughs> scenario at our fingertips at all times. Oh, Sam, just wait until you have kids. <laughs> then it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like it opens a whole other, you know, realm of, of um, hypochondriac Googling. 
on behalf of your one of the yeah, one of the many reasons I don't plan to have. Children. I know. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, yeah. I just I love the way that that plays against this sort of like there's this kind of false god in mm-hmm. medical diagnosis, right? right? That we we want to place all of our trust in. Yeah, I mean, one of the roots for me was uh, what happened after my first diagnosis, which was like an anxiety disorder. Um, And so I had always been like an anxious and like relatively, uh, uh, you know, uh, neuroatypical person. But then after a therapist or someone who had been like imbued by uh, with some external power said, this is what you have. Immediately, it felt different to be in my body immediately it felt different to sort of like negotiate the world with this diagnosis. And there was comfort and it was, uh, and it was exciting. And then it was also in retrospect, um, I brought up like sort of a lot of complicated feelings for me about how I move in my body and how that relates to the world mapping culture onto it. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, why this book came out of me as a poem, uh, is I think poetry does similar work, right? How language maps how we move through the world and how we define ourselves in relationship to you know to everything else um and so that was sort of like the initial project of the book was like why did this change how it feels in my body right and how does that connect to systems and history and whatever and that is um, that is really truly amazing and that's almost something that poetry does it's something that um Mm. you know like religious religious people encounter right like the experience Mm. not the experience changing you are the same person before and after a diagnosis but that you are changed Mm. in in Mm. some way like your experience has changed Mm. because it's being viewed through some other like lens in a way or like you know and Mm. then you're like looking back maybe too and thinking like oh that sort of explains a lot you know, about mm. things in the past. And so you have to kind of like change the narrative that you have mm-hmm. been humming along on all your life in a way yeah. it changes who you are. Right. Mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, for me, this also happened with uh, the language of addiction where uh, I think when I knew you, when I was studying with you in Texas, I was uh, so- sober and identified as an addict Um and over time, that sort of identity has shifted and grown a little, uh, a little shifty for me about when it's useful, when it's nice to try on this, this hat, and when it feels uh, sort of damaging and reductive. Um, and I think that's true with some diagnoses. I th- definitely think it's true with most of the ways I've moved through the world. You know, I want to go yeah. off of that and ask you about this poem and the collection mm. it comes from. Um, it really like the, the the collection deals with difficult topics, right? Mm. Hard to talk about, hard to um, I think for many people it would be hard to sort of uh, have readers assume that the speaker is them and that this is news you're sort of you know giving to the world. And I mm. I wonder because there's something about your poems that feels and not only when you read them yourself but the poems themselves are imbued with this sort of sense of dramatic performance hmm. you know like there's a sort of sense of, of performance in the poems this is something when hmm. I read these poems with my students at the Michener Center last year hmm. this was something they really they really um, 
sort of glommed onto in discussion was the sort of like, how mm. do you perform yourself in poetry? And I just wonder if you mm. have any um, like thoughts about that. Like what is, what does it mean for you to write this book? And is it different mm. than the way you've approached writing in the past, right? Yeah. Um, well, this is actually the second full length book I had completed. Um, my first book's going to be coming out in September of this year called Bury It on Wesleyan University Press. Um, and that book was like a hundo percent autobiographical and largely sort of mined various traumas or whatever. Um, or it's, I guess it largely negotiates uh, like queer coming of age narratives and suicide. Um, this book, the project was to look outward in a different way. Originally, when I started writing it, I was it was just going to be sort of a, a documentary uh, book project on the history of mental illness and queerness um, and how uh, psychoanalysis sort of invented queer people through pathologizing them, right? Um, and how useful and itchy that can be, you know, when, like we were talking about sort of uh, in addiction, right? How the identity of the addict is inherited and also complicated um, by living inside of it and interacting with the world. Um, so initially that this book was supposed to just be this, uh, this outward gaze, right? And this layering of inherited texts. Um, but that turned out to be something I couldn't write. And then I ended up having to sort of like insert my body back into it my family history, my family's experience as uh, medical, as, yeah, as mental health practitioners and patients. Um, and that helped me gain sort of an authority over the materials in a way I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And I think with that in mind, everything I write is autobiographical and rooted in the self, unless it's explicit, uh, explicitly stated otherwise. But I also want to say that that self is fragmented, right? And multiple and contains multitudes. Um, and there's, I think the, whenever, whenever I'm writing from a place, it's with, uh, it's like a hundred percent rooted in that experience I'm having right then. Right. Or the, the way the chemicals are working in my brain and the location I'm writing from then, which of course isn't always how I feel or always how I am, but it is, uh, that does sort of lend its authority to that moment, right? So yeah, and I mean, I think I also came out of the slam and was a performance poet, so there's a way that the poems, for me, always feel yoked to my spoken voice, and there's a way that uh, that's always rooted in myself and my personhood and my lived experience inhabiting this particular and temporary body. Isn't that interesting? That that's mm. what that is just something that is like in it is in your body and it's in your poems. It comes through that um, because that is where like you were located as a poet. Right. That's like where I just like find that very fascinating. This is a very simple question because um, I'm curious um, because you have just said that your poems are autobiographical unless otherwise stated. This is a difficult collection of poems. Did you, when the book was coming out, when it won the National Poetry Series, am I right? Mm. 
Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Following in your footsteps. I you know, know we're in the same press as well, same editor. Mm-hmm. I'm having yeah. lunch with Paul. He's going to be in Austin soon. Um, yeah. Anyway, this was all. Uh, this is all to ask. Like, what did you ever have any moments where you were like, "Oh man, this is going out into the world," and yeah. did you feel so, self-conscious yeah. about it? Did you feel weird about it? Did you feel like, "Oh, finally, I will be known to the world," or you know? What were your emotions around that? Just yeah. as a... so, it, I mean, this is, I mean, I've been, you know, obviously writing for a while and performing my workout for a while. Um, and so I felt so sure I wouldn't have that anxiety or experience, you know, like I've read poems about my family in public. I've had them on the, like various popular YouTube channels or whatever. I've made like four or five chat books. Uh, and this was when the book ended up coming out, it was an entirely different experience. Um, I was most nervous, I think, about how my grandfather was presented in the book. Um, he's a 86-year-old, still practicing Freudian analyst in New York. Um, and I ended up talking to him a lot when I was making this book about what like, his training looked like, um, sort of some of the problem areas around uh, gender and sexuality and analysis historically and contemporarily um and he shows up in the book sort of over and over again in ways that aren't aren't disingenuous to the experience but also uh necessarily partial right there aren't like poems that really explore how wonderful our relationship is right (laughs) um so there's just the yeah and so i think that was the thing i was most nervous about so i ended up taking him out to dinner and we had a conversation about how he shows up in the book and uh, and it ended up going great. I think it actually made our relationship a lot closer. Um, yeah. Has but he yes, read the poem? something that terrified me. Yeah, yeah, he read the book. I mean, I think they're, him and my grandma are both, like, very supportive of my work, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but yeah, yeah, he read the book. I pointed him towards the poems that I thought would be the most difficult for us to negotiate. Um, Yeah, and I'm sure there are going to be a whole set of other concerns when the second book comes out with different family members. Mm. I'm excited to read that book. Um, I was I'm I'm curious to know. I know that you sort of came up as a poet through the performance poetry in the performance poetry world or the slam poetry world. I don't know if those two Uh things are different. Are those two different things? Uh, They are. They are. I'm sorry. Um, oh, that's okay. Uh, but I wonder, like, even before that, or what led you to that? What let what led you to uh, poetry? Mm. Um, well, I mean, I was in my like high school poetry group, I guess, um, called Calliope. But mostly, it was just an excuse to sort of smoke pot and hang out with a boy I thought was cute. And then I was a, like a theater maker and a really bad rapper that I took very, and I took that very seriously. And yeah, and sort of I, through that, I dabbled with uh, monologues that were also poems, right? I feel like, like a play and a verse in like a rap song sort of offer similar opportunity for like the singular human voice to do its thing. And so I kind of like did a lot of multidisciplinary work around poems in college where, like, I would hand out bars of soap and do stuff with projections while reading these, like, poem-type texts. Um, And out of that, uh, I don't know, I guess I graduated and didn't have anything to do. And my friends, who had graduated the year before, were on this year-long poetry tour where they were living in their car, 
Um, and they had just started. So I hopped in the car with them and we like traveled the country for a year, uh, getting to sort of see different literary communities and spoken word communities across the country. And I got to see cities that I'd never seen and probably wouldn't have otherwise. And uh, I think through that process, got to fall in love with what poetry was and how it and what it had to offer, particularly in terms of uh, transforming like a listener's life and physically orienting and reorganizing community, you know? Like city after city, I got to see ways that people's lives were changed through poetry. And so, and then my life was like quite literally changed through that process as well. And so I guess from there, I decided to dedicate the rest of my life to it. We talked to Kristen Aptowitz. Oh, yeah. A couple weeks ago. Love Kristen. She loves you. We talked a lot about you in our discussion of the kind of way that slam and performance poetry has become much more present in the academy, Mm, in in that world of poetry. And we were saying, and it's so funny now to talk to you about it, because I was saying, you know, when I was in school, there was like this huge divide, you know, back in the Middle Ages Mm. when I was in school. (laughs) And then, you know... When I, I I really did like locate the the shift for me because from my in my experience was when I then went back and taught at UT I taught that class and you were in my class mm-hmm. and you were yeah. of that tradition and you wore it very proudly mm-hmm. and I cannot tell you mm-hmm. how refreshing and wonderful that it was really meaningful to me as a person who had had the experience that you were having in academia as, as that you were all having in academia um it was just really meaningful to me to see um you there and you know i'm just not coming to poetry from an academic experience you know mm. yeah I mean, that was a really important class for me. It introduced me to a lot of poets I hadn't read before. Yeah, and to think more about sort of the, the spirit and the spiritual in work in a larger context. Um, so thank you for that. For me, so I went to graduate school because my friend Cameron told me you could get paid to go back to school. Um, and I had no idea that, that was a thing. Like, I hadn't really heard of the MFA as like a opportunity I had been sort of writing and organizing around literature in the Bay Area for the past four years and then I was like oh I can like quit a bunch of shitty day jobs or a bunch of bad day jobs and then go go back to school and so that's sort of how I ended up at the Missioner Center which was a great you know great experience or it was great to have that time and space to write um, but I also think I don't know if anyone had come out of the slam who had been in that program before and I think, yeah, I, th- I mean, I still think there's, that divide is lessening, but I think it's still there in certain certain contexts in academia. And I think especially in how a lot of poets who came out of the slam tend to be getting whatever the awards that were coveted in academia, right? Or like the anxiety that there aren't enough spaces for folks who don't know how to read out their work, I feel like tends to come to a head in these spaces. But I mean, I mean, I don't know. I guess like the initial folks who I looked to, who were poets who had been slam poets, who then ended up having a career in poetry, 
in a larger context were like Patricia Smith and, um, and I guess Jeffrey McDaniel, who I just ended up teaching with at Sarah Lawrence this past semester. Sam, did you bring a poem to share with us? With the cla- did you bring a, clo- a, a, a poem to share with the class? Yeah. <laughs> Show and share. Yeah. I would uh, love to hear um, what well, you chose. Okay. I was going to read... Uh, I, let me know if anyone's picked this, but uh, Catherine with the Lazy Eye, Short and Not a Good Poet by Francine J. Harris. No. No. Read it. Yeah. Absolutely. This poem is by Francine J. Harris, titled Catherine with the Lazy Eye, Short and Not a Good Poet. This morning, I heard you were found in your McDonald's uniform. I heard it while I was visiting a lake town where empty woodsy highways turn into waterside drives. I'd forgot my toothbrush and was brushing with my finger when a friend who didn't know you said he heard it like this. You know Catherine, short, with a lazy eye, poet, not a very good one. Yeah, well, she died. The blue on that lake fogs off into the horizon like styrofoam. The picnic tables full of white people I ask them where the coffee is. They say, at Meyer. I wonder if you thought about getting out of Detroit. When you read at the open mic, you'd point across the street at McDonald's and told us to come see you. Catherine with a lazy eye, short and not a good poet. I guess I almost cried. I don't know why, because I didn't like you. This is the first time I remembered your name. I didn't like how you followed around a married man, that your poem sucked, and that I figured they were all about the married man. That sometimes you reminded me of myself, boy crazy. That sometimes I think people just don't tell me that I'm kind of, well, slow. Catherine with the lazy eye, short, and not a good poet. I didn't like your lazy eye always looking at me, that you called me by my name. I didn't like you since the first time I saw you at McDonald's. You had a mop and you were letting some homeless dude flirt with you. I wondered then if you thought that was the best you could do. I wondered then if it was Catherine with a lazy eye, short, and not a good poet. You were too silly to wind up dead in an abandoned building. I didn't like you because what was I supposed to tell you? What? Don't let them look at you like that, Catherine. Don't let them get you alone. You didn't get to laugh like that, like nothing's going to get you. Not everyone will forgive the slow girl, Catherine with the fucked up eye, short, poetry sucked, must have knew better. I avoided you in the hallway. I avoided you in lunch line. I avoided you in the lake. I avoided you. My lazy eye, Catherine with one hideous eye, shit, poetry for boys again. You should have been immune. You were supposed to be a cartoon. Your body was supposed to be as twisted as it was going to get, short and not a good poet, Catherine with no eye no more. I avoided you, hated it when you said my name. I really want to leave Detroit, Catherine the lazy short, not a good poet and shit. Somewhere, someone has already asked, what was she like? And a woman has brought out her wallet and said, this is her. This is my beautiful baby. What a poem. Yeah. In the middle of the poem when you were reading it. I've never I've never read that poem before. In the middle when I like it takes the turn of like 
oh, it starts getting really sort of mean. Like, oh, wow, that's a turn. And we're going in this direction now. And then it just sort of like keeps going in the way that a mind does when they're, it's sort of perseverating on something. Mm. And then the end is yeah. like just I mean, so um, heartbreaking. And it makes me think so much about the way that we are like ingesting mm. by way of media, like atrocity after atrocity after atrocity and how, um, mm. you know, it can it can be so um, terrifyingly like easy to just sort of see something and not, you know, ha- have to think of someone as someone's child or someone, mm. you know, you were just supposed to be a cartoon, right? That's what she says here. This, I mean, this right. is, you know, yeah. 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 Empathy is made of distance and proximity. Um, and that all collapses in the end of the, this poem. I, 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 re- I read this poem first in 2011, I guess, that summer. And... Uh, yeah, it just sort of stuck and rattled around in my head. And how this sentence ends up breaking down over and over again through the poem really showed me like what was possible in syntax and line and elegy. Um, I don't know. I'd never read an elegy like this before. Mm-hmm. I'd never read a poem that negotiates death and proximity and loss and identification in this way. And I think this poem really continues to teach me the more I read it. There's something about the way the speaker in the poem like comes finally to those last lines where Mm. she has successfully divested herself from the position Mm. of like, you know, wise, overly empathetic poet person who feels all Mm. pain and is here as your wisdom guide through the the world. You know, she's just, she's not that. Mm. And so when we get to those last yeah. lines, it's not her delivering them. It's it's mm. much more powerful than that, I think. Because, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's right. not like she's congratulating yeah. herself on like, and I was the one person who saw this person as a human or whatever. I mean, it's, 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 mm. it's almost the opposite of that. But then she comes yeah. to that and... I wonder how, I mean, that's the kind of poem that I just think, I want to know how they, how did how that poet write that poem, you know? Mm. I want to be in that, in that, in that room, in that mind as it's happening. At the end, the, the poet allows the imagined mother to speak, right? And I think that, and after we, we see the, the speaker as being this sort of flawed um, and complicated person, like every person is, right? Although, and I think I agree with you, you don't see that in, the elegiac form very often you don't see that in poems that often right where the speaker is complicated and doesn't really know how they feel about a subject but want to explore it interpret it uh, as the poem moves and breaks down I, i think it leads to a really compelling piece of writing Sam Sachs's poem, Hashtag Hypochondria, can be found in his National Poetry Series winning collection, Madness, out from Penguin. This Is Just to Say is produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. I'm Carrie Fountain. Thanks for listening. <laughs>